podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. All right. Hey, oh, happy Thursday morning. Boss man, are you there? I'm here. All right. I'm back in Barcelona. It's good to be home and it's good to be on the podcast with you. Today, we are going to do something a little bit different. We're going to answer questions from the audience. So what I did was I dug up some emails that we received and anonymized some of the information. You up for it? I love answering questions. All right. By the way, I just want to mention, if you want to ask us questions or if you want to hear something talked about on this show... Go check out tropicalmba.com slash subscribe. If you subscribe to the show, you'll be given an opportunity to uh, fill out just a quick little form, and uh, maybe your question, your business will be on this very show. First question, boss man. Hey, guys, due to a family shakeup, I'm now in a position where I've got a $600 plus a month payment on a two-year-old Toyota van. Okay, hashtag van life. Nice. We got two kids and love having a van, but this doesn't qualify as an entrepreneur mobile. In my position, would you suck it up and pay the payments or make a move? Okay, so the questioner is upside down on a car. I think we've all been upside down on something at some point in our lives. So the question is, do you take the hit? Because the car is probably not worth as much as what you can sell it for. Or do you just suck it up and keep paying that huge, huge car payment? Hmm. First of all, what is an entrepreneur mobile? Okay, I'm going to illustrate it with a story. A few weeks ago, I'm in your garage, and you have a really nice motorcycle sitting there. And I point to it, and I say, hey, why did you buy this motorcycle? I know you don't ride motorcycles very much anymore. And you're like, meh, well, it's going to be worth the same amount in a few years. And your point is, is that this is a fully depreciated asset. So it's as good as cash. Like, you paid $5,000 for that motorcycle, you can ride it around for a few years and sell it for $5,000 three years from now. Right. My van, I own a 2004 Honda Odyssey with 130,000 miles on it, leather interior, heated seats. It's gangster. It's luxury on wheels, my friend. <laughs> I paid $5,000 in cash thanks to your help on this. This purchase really opened my eyes. It honestly did because you know, we all have driven around in these fancy cars with the big car payments and stuff. And I think to myself, this isn't much better than my van. And the best thing about my van is that a few years from now, I can sell it for 4500 bucks. So I essentially drove a car for a few years, and it cost me $500. So I've had vehicles before, and I've sold them, right? Just to buy them right back a couple months later with like basically the same money in the same vehicle. And so <laughs> what I've figured out over the years is like, hey, if I want something, and I, even if I only use it a couple times a year, you just keep it around because I have the space now. But for most people, that's not probably the case. For most people, what they want to do is they want to drive around in something that's quiet, that's comfortable, that's safe, that doesn't end up costing them an arm and a leg. And what you said is true about vehicles, which is over the last 10, 15 years, there's been incremental changes, meaning the leather really isn't any nicer in a new car than it is in an older car. The AC, if it's working properly, doesn't really blow any colder. Yes, the car might be marginally safer, but 
that's mostly marketing. So especially in the last 15 years. Now, if you go back like 50 years, yes, the cars are much safer than they were 50 years. So there is a benchmark. There is a baseline. Why do people resist this idea, though, so much, you know? Status, especially in the United States. I mean, to be driving something that's 15 years old in the United States, you know, going to the places that you're going to be seen with your friends that have newer cars, it's status. Well, personally, I feel awesome. <laughs> this questioner, though, has disassociated. They're not talking about status. They're talking about numbers at this point. Yeah. So you're upside down in a car. What do you do? Well, first of all, don't get in this situation. So you figured out a way to buy a van, a Honda van for $5,000. That Toyota, I'm assuming it's like a Sienna, fully loaded Sienna. I think those are like upper 30s or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like the difference between your van and that van, they're like a DVD player away. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) So first of all, don't get into the situation at all. This concept of entrepreneur mobile came from the way I was living, but then I also wrote it up and that's over at the TMBA blog forward slash entrepreneur mobile. And a lot of the reasons why people go for the new vehicles is because they're scared of the maintenance on the older vehicles and they're scared of the cost of the maintenance. But the truth is the cost of maintenance on your Honda will never outpace the cost of this car payment that this person has on their Toyota Sienna. So you will never pay $600 a month for as many months as they will pay on that new car, if that makes sense. For sure. So number one, don't get yourself in this situation. Number two, if you're in the situation and you're feeling the burn, you got to figure out a way to get out because it's not going to get any better. So these things, most cars, if they're not collector cars, special cars, whatever, they depreciate. And that $34,000 van... The first year nosedive dumps 20%. Yeah. And then it starts to dump 10% every year. And so you will probably always be behind. Generally speaking, the sooner you can get out, the better. That being said, a lot of people can afford a $600 a month payment. Now, if you're listening to Dave Ramsey and some of these other financial gurus are going to say like, no payments. If you can't pay it in cash, don't do it. Especially if you're growing a business. That's what I would say, by the way. That's the easy rule of thumb here is like, don't buy crappy assets with loans. Right. Right. It's like two bad things. You combine them, it's doubly bad. So don't do that. And that's just a fundamentals thing, right? Don't buy crappy things with loans. You're buying a depreciating asset with interest. (laughs) You tell this to people though, and they're like, but, but, (laughs) but, 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 but there's a lot of other <laughs> options out there. It's a tough That's one. The truth. Sell the van. Buy a 15-year-old van. This week's show is sponsored by Jungle Scout. Jungle Scout is an awesome analytical tool that has helped thousands to launch and grow profitable Amazon businesses. Jungle Scout makes it simple to come up with endless product ideas and then make informed decisions about which one of them will sell profitably because the major challenge to success on the Amazon platform is choosing the right product. In fact, Jungle Scout's founder and CEO, Greg Mercer, spoke last year at our event and was also on this podcast, episode number 324, The Amazon Gold Rush, talking about exactly that. In that episode, if you go back and take a listen, Greg shared the details of how he came up with an idea of selling modified bamboo marshmallow sticks, no joke, which made nearly $200,000 in sales in the first year. And if you like that story, they have another case study out right now available to TMBA listeners at junglescout.com slash TMBA. Catch the most up-to-date strategies as Greg shares the process of launching a new product 
hooded baby towels with the ambitious target of hitting a million dollars in sales and donating all the profits to charity. It's an inspiring story which also provides the knowledge required to get started as an e-commerce seller. So whether you're new to Amazon or already established, finding the right items to sell can be a pain in the butt. It's time-consuming, tedious, and restrictive, and that's when Jungle Scout comes in to help all of that. Many sellers confidently vote Jungle Scout as the most important tool they use on a daily basis in their business. You can see those at junglescout.com slash testimonials. Don't take my word for it. In brief, Jungle Scout is an invaluable tool for people wanting to grow and scale profitable location-independent businesses. If that sounds good, get right on it. Check out their special case study for TMBA listeners, junglescout.com slash TMBA. And big thanks to the Jungle Scout team for sponsoring the show. Next question. My question is about passion versus profit. One year ago, I'm on day 333 of the thousand day principle. I started an e-commerce store with the ultimate hope of funding my passion for painting full time. My first product line failed totally. And what's worse is that I've run out of runway. Now that I'm all out of money and that my e-commerce business sucks, I'm painting less than ever. What would you guys do? Wow, bringing down the tenor of the episode. First off, for those who don't know, the 1,000-day principle is something that we've kicked around at the show after having spoken with thousands of entrepreneurs. It's basically that if you have a, a nice-paying professional job, say you make eighty, ninety, dollars $100,000 a year or whatever, if you're going to start your own business, to make that much from your own business, and not from freelancing, but from actually building an organization that pays you that kind of money, it can often or you can expect that to take about three years of full-time effort. So... That's a long time. So this person's saying they have done one year and that it's been really rough. So the way I understand it is they got away from painting because they needed to figure out a way to pay for their painting. So they started an e-commerce business. Yeah. Okay. So generally speaking, I think if you want to become a painter, you should do a couple of things. You should surround yourself with other painters that are making money. That's really important, I think. Yeah. So they can show you how that's done. And that's really easy to get into that community, I'm sure. If you're talented, you know. This is like applies to anything in life, by the way. And it just demystifies. Right. Start hanging out with people that are making money painting. Simple. Start seeing what their life looks like. Because a lot of times, that's not the kind of life that you're going to want once you show up to that party. They might be egomaniacs these painters it could be horrible people you might not want to be like that or it could be a horrible business it could be feast or famine i mean i'm imagining i don't have any friends that are personally in this position but i'm imagining selling one piece of art and it funding my life for two months or whatever and then getting down to the wire and trying to figure out how to sell the next piece of art i mean it could be very stressful life it could be that you're just painting the same thing over and over all the time so this like kind of romantic vision that you have in your head or like unconfirmed vision of what your ideal life is can you can kind of get down to brass tacks if you you meet people. But let me just back it up a second because the reason this question comes up I think is because people listen to podcasts like this or they go around to blogs and entrepreneurship it's often positioned as something to solve your life's problems. Like if you don't like your boss, if you don't like the fact that you can't travel, if you don't like the fact that you're broke, well, entrepreneurship. But it's much more than that, right? It's a craft. It's a skill set. It's a way of life, right? And so I think it, it can seduce people into it who might not 
really want to be an entrepreneur. You might not want to sell things online or build an e-commerce store because of the promise that's sort of attached to it. The other part of that is that you're actually solving other people's problems through entrepreneurship. And then you're solving your personal problems last if you're successful solving other people's problems. Ah, You will not solve your problem, your personal problem, unless you can solve other people's problems first. That's the way it works. Let me coin that for you, boss man. Let's call it the principle of usefulness. This helps me a lot. Because entrepreneurship is so fluid and flexible, you know, it's like sit down and write down your desires and design a business that gets it to you, you know? You can often forget that, like, this is all based, the fundamental principle here is that you're helping other people. And sometimes that can take some of the burden off of you. Like, look, figuring out how to be happy in life and live your passion and be a successful artist, like, those are hard problems to solve. It might be better to ask yourself, like, how can my painting help people? How can what I'm good at benefit other people? Who's willing to pay me to do stuff? What do people value in what I'm good at? And that's just being useful in the world, you know, and getting out of your own head and problem set. Yep. The other thing here is like doing one thing to get another, you know, it's like we always talk about like the corner office test or the five-year on-stage test. So the five-year on-stage test is like you ask yourself, what industry conference do I want to be speaking at in five years? And you can ask yourself about that, about your current business. Like, would you be willing? Would you be excited to have that opportunity? Public speaking fear aside, if you don't want to be that invested in the business that you're growing, i.e. you really want to be doing something else, I mean, this stuff's hard enough if you're fully invested. So I think it's a bad strategy in general to just do something that you don't have energy for because I think energy is, is a big, big part of this. And the other idea is maybe get a job that is related to what you think you want to do in the future. So, and this, I don't think this is crazy. Go get a job as a painter with someone that's a more successful painter that's doing the things that you want to do. So instead of spending your time working on that e-commerce site, becoming a quote entrepreneur early, go work for someone that's actually doing what you want to do. By the way, not surprising that a lot of artists and musicians listen to this show and are interested in entrepreneurship because I think entrepreneurship is a creative thing. A lot of times you can scratch that itch for what drew you to painting or to writing or all that kind of stuff. You can scratch that itch somehow in a business or in being useful to others. Yeah, and I'll say this too about being an artist these days. It's never been easier. It has never, ever, ever been easier in this world to make a living from painting. So few people did it in the past. Speaking of jobs, I've got another question here, Ian. I should uh, shuffle some papers. Uh, they're not written down. They're, they're on my computer screen. <laughs> <There you> go. <laughs> hey, guys. I work at a marketing agency based in NYC, one of our favorite cities in the world, and have 20K saved up in my bank account. So first off, you work at a marketing agency and you save 20K. I'm impressed. Congrats. And you live in New York. I'm impressed. You're not eating bodega sandwiches every night. That's for sure. Uh, Hoagie will set you back 12 bucks in that city. That's what's going on there cold cuts and some provolone 12 bucks boom <laughs> it's brutal it is unbelievable i'm single and okay i'm single and i really want to start my own business would you recommend starting something on the side or going all in so i assume what they mean is going all in that is quitting the job and just kind of sink or swim there's a lot of red flags here for me in this okay. question <laughs> a lot of red flags it's three sentences first of all <laughs> yeah, I'm reading between the double space lines here. Okay, so 
I'm single and I really want to start my own business. Would you recommend starting something on the side or going all in? So we haven't talked at all about what this person's skill set is, what this person's desires are in life, where this person wants to be in five years, the things that this person likes to spend their time doing, the problems that this person is good at solving. This question to me is troubling because I think, again... Maybe they just didn't want to brag to you. But let's assume they're good at marketing. Let's assume that they're good at marketing, sure. I want to know what the problems are that they're going to be solving for people in terms of marketing. That's where the question should be. It should be, how do I solve X problem in marketing? I'm working at this marketing agency. They're not really addressing it. I see a need for this, right? But instead, it's, hey, I've got 20 grand saved up. I really want to start my own business. Why do you want to start your own business? What are the problems that you're going to be solving? So I think in a way, it's just asking the wrong question. Fair enough. But let's say that they want to solve some kind of marketing problem. Is $20,000 in runway living in NYC the way to go? That's going to get you nowhere. Here's a cool thing about quitting your job is that jobs take you away from all the interesting people that could contribute to an unemployed life in the future, like at the times when you could meet them, right? So it's like, you're only out of work when everybody else is like at home with their families or whatever. And here's one of the coolest things. When I used to go to all these meetup groups in San Diego, it was all about business and stuff. And the only good freaking meetup group, the only people that were walking their walk and not a bunch of blowhards were the ones that were meeting Wednesday during the day because it was all the unemployed people could come. And unemployed people are fascinating because each one has found this strange little narrative such that they can wear slippers and flannel pajama bottoms on Wednesday mornings and drink coffee and read the newspaper, right? This, to me, as someone who once had a couple jobs, is the most amazing thing about owning your own business. I can understand that anybody would want it. You can spend your time how you want to. An idea so incredible to me that I didn't even believe it was possible when I was 25. The cool thing about going all in and quitting is that if you can use that time to do things like go to conferences, to move to places where you can be around the people who are having a successful marketing agency, say there are people that are solving marketing problems. They're not that hard to find. Why don't you go hang out with them? Where are they? Austin, Saigon, Chiang Mai, Bangkok, who knows where they could be? They could be in some random city that we don't, we haven't heard about yet, that you found those people. And what's better, if you can get a gig, a freelance gig, some apprenticeship, even doing some free work and working your way up that way, if you could get a few thousand dollars a month stipend to offset your expenses, now all of a sudden that 20K is going to go a long, long way. There's some location hustle to be done here. Yeah. And you know what? You can go to conferences for free, by the way. You know how you do that? How? You email the organizer and you say, here's how I can help make your conference better, and I'll do it for free. All I want is the badge around my neck. I think we've done that. You're going to get more out of it than if you pay the 1000 bucks and just show up. So getting back to uh, the van at the top of this episode. Please do. Yeah, the lady was... She's got a van... The payment $600 a month. Can you really afford it? You've got $20,000. You live in NYC. Can you really afford to quit your job? I think from every account I've ever seen in New York City, the answer is no. So my first suggestion would be to get out of that city and to go, like Dan said, to go to another city where things are happening. 
people are moving, and it's not necessarily NYC. So here's another commentary that I have on New York City and San Francisco and some of these larger cities. Yeah. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, boy. This is where I'm going to get the editing pen out. All right, go ahead. Try not to piss people off too much. The other day I ran into somebody, (laughs) and they said, yeah, I'm working on this startup. It's really starting to take off. Here's what's happening in New York and San Francisco. Somehow the plebes have found their way into the word startup. (laughs) (laughs) And they're using it very liberally. And they're using it as a way to entice people, I think, into thinking what they're doing is cool and interesting and making money. The truth of the matter is that most, quote, startups don't work out. Most startups fail. Yeah. And by the way, there is in these large cities a startup ecosystem. Let's say you work at a 30, 40, 50 person agency or whatever, completely run on horseshit. Yes. I'm not even kidding because there are a few players with millions of dollars and those millions of dollars change hands based on cocktail parties amongst rich people. And I've seen a 100 person software startups that's basically airware, right? Like total horseshit. But these people are like starting up, they're hiring people, they're exiting, they're doing stuff. And like, that's an ecosystem that you can be a part of, but that's not really doing your own thing. That's not being in flannel pajamas Wednesday morning. And so my advice is get an apprenticeship or some kind of gig with somebody who is building the kinds of businesses we're talking about here. Bootstrap businesses that do honest, valuable things for real customers. Uh, Cash goes to the bottom line in your bank account and you can live or do whatever you want with your days. Like that's the idea. So find somebody like that, work for them, and then use your location flexibility to baseline yourself a little bit, reduce your expenses because you're probably not going to get your return on investment living around all the shit flying around in these really expensive cities. You know, go somewhere a little bit more affordable and in a community of people that are doing what it is you want to do. That's the bottom line. Yeah, final thought for this person that wrote in from NYC. Do yourself a favor before you get into this, before you quit your job. Figure out what your ideal Saturday looks like. Because as an entrepreneur, as somebody that's first starting their business, especially the first five years, I'd say, of their business, weekends don't probably exist for you. Now, I've seen versions of entrepreneurs that are very successful, bootstrapped entrepreneurs, and they do have their weekends and they make that a priority for them. But In my experience, most of the people I know that are successful, that are solving problems for other people, are thinking about solving problems for other people 24 hours out of the day, like all the time, like you can't shut it off. And I think for a lot of people, there is a ton of value in being able to go home at 5 p.m., not think about the problems at work anymore, being able to have the weekend to their self and their family. I know entrepreneurs, we just aired an episode, that have gone back to having jobs. And I think that that's okay. But just do yourself a favor and ask yourself how you want to spend your Saturday for the next five years. And if it's not working, you might not be ready for this. Can I take a little sidebar moment to talk about Lance Armstrong for a minute? Famous American bicycle rider. Actually, I just talked about Lance Armstrong. I was riding in a boat this weekend in Austin where he is... I think he's here part-time or whatever part-time drove the boat by his old house so that's the kind of street that he lives on i was driving a boat down it <laughs> that's a rich man poor man if, quite if, impressive if you can pull your boat up to your house yeah, yeah. it's not a middle class thing <laughs> but yes lance armstrong is interesting he has a podcast where he's you know the tour de france is going on right now and he kind of re-injected himself in the conversation and he's analyzing each stage on his podcast it's called stages it's awesome to hear like this kind of former disgraced champion kind of go into the details of what it takes to win this race. He's like blowing away every other commentator. And one of the things that's like really palpable when you hear Lance Armstrong talk is his attention to detail 
and his ambition. The two were really correlated. Like when he wanted to win the Tour de France, like he knew everything about the Tour de France. He knew previous winners. He knew, you know, how they were doing it. He knew their training regimens. He knew their diet regimens. He knew that who their director of sportif was. He knew he read in depth the articles that were written about him and his competitors. He would call the journalists and give them hell about it. And I see the same thing, the same sort of correlation when you look at entrepreneurs. There's a high correlation between level of ambition and level of where you're at in your career. And I think so sometimes it's worth having like a little bit of a gut check because there's two different kinds of people. Like we recently uh, hung out at DC Austin conference and there was a couple people up on the main stage talking about multi-million dollar businesses. And I don't know if you noticed boss man, but the ambition was clear and it's very, very different. That level of ambition, attention to detail to where you're going, why you want it, what others who are there are doing. That's ambition versus I want wouldn't it be nice? I'm really hoping. I'm starting a startup. I talked to some people. That's so very different from what we're hearing on stage. What we're hearing on stage is, here's what the players are doing. Here's how I'm addressing it. Here's how my business is going to adapt to that. And by the way, I'm leaving this conversation right now because I'm going to go get on it. Yeah. Right? That's ambition. <laughs> you got time for one more question, boss man? I love answering questions. All right. Hey, guys, I'm attending DCBKK in October this year, and my family will be coming with me to Thailand. So the events in Bangkok, the capital of Thailand. I got some ideas, but I wanted your opinions. Our kids are 11 and 14, and we want to spend four weeks somewhere in Asia around the event. Where would you guys recommend? What is DCBKK? For six years now, me and you have been hosting an event in Thailand at a five-star hotel. It's got like a mall, a pool, a gym. <laughs> yeah, five-star hotel. You, you said this before, and I was like, okay, I have stayed at a five-star hotel before. Cool. But in Asia, it means something a little bit different. There's a pillow menu. There's like a rain. Like you can have multiple hoses spritzing at you in, in the shower, or you can take a tub, right? This is a serious stuff. It's cool. I think it's known for having the best and brightest collection of entrepreneurs who are doing this thing that we're talking about on this show, people growing meaningful online businesses that are mostly bootstrapped, although we do have some people who are taking investments. Hundreds of us get there and we have a great time together. And a lot of people, they bring their significant others, their partners, their family, and they want to turn it into a trip. Some people do it business stuff, like they'll go to the Canton Fair or Hong Kong. Some people will just say, hey, wouldn't it be great to go to the most beautiful beaches in the world for a little while with my family? So- the kids are 11 and 14, so that's kind of cool, though, because this is like a potential life-changing. Yeah, they're ready to soak it up. Three years ago, I took my family to Asia, and it was so cool like seeing them experience it for the first time. Everything is just an assault on your senses, you know? Like, everything's different. Everything. I remember the first time I went to Asia, it was like, just even the smallest details, like the windows were different, constructed differently, you know, the doors are different, the smells are different, the people, the food, every single thing. It's just 180 degrees from, you know, Western culture in a lot of ways. And so, I think that's probably what will be cool for these people is that their kids are 11 and 14, so they've actually reached an age where they can probably appreciate some of those things. Here's a thought. So, I'm going to toss out some locations and some mindset about this. So I think if you're going to stay in Thailand, my favorite places to hang out are currently Koh Samui. Koh Samui is kind of like, it's a luxury resort island. It's not so big. You have to fly like Bangkok Airways to get there. 
And I just love it there. I love the resorts there. I love the scenery. I mean, we're talking world-class turquoise beaches, but there's still a lot to do on Koh Samui. There's a lot of high-end restaurants. It's very family-friendly. I go there every year. So Koh Samui would be my choice for kind of a luxury getaway. There's a lot of like health stuff there. So like yoga, there's a lot of like detox kind of clinics, a lot of nature, hiking, boating, fishing. The beach is fabulous. The resorts are cool and they're affordable. So that's one place to consider. Another place I think would be great for kids is Chiang Mai. If you want to be up in the mountains, definitely if you're in Chiang Mai though, think about transportation. I think if you're willing to like rent a car or have some kind of way that you can get out of town and get into the mountains, that's important. You don't want to be dependent on just walking around or taxis. That's kind of my advice there. If you want to have a kind of an adventure that's like a little bit like kind of the next step off the tourist track, I love Vietnam. That's like one of the greatest places to visit. And Hanoi is just absolutely stunningly beautiful. Uh, it's so historic. It's so cool to see. If you want beaches, you could go to Da Nang and Hoi An in the center of the country, and you can fly for really cheap, you know, from location to location. But location aside, man, I think my main advice is don't be a tourist. You know what I mean? Like people kind of, you live in a place for 10 years and you never go to one museum. And then it's like you land in a new place. It's like, let's go to museums. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> isn't that weird? <laughs> and you get funneled. I was talking to somebody who was in Italy yesterday and they joked about how every restaurant they went to they were just in a room full of americans sitting around eating their spaghettis so you don't have to all of a sudden become this class of strange herd animal called tourist like the adventure is ready made baked in for you wherever you're going just cooking a meal together at home could be an adventure setting up an apartment Like I said, like, you know, the doors are different. The windows are different. The supermarkets are different, you know? Going to the supermarket in Asia is an experience in itself. And so you will have a great time regardless. I think the idea that you can go to Vietnam, you can go to Cambodia, you can go to a lot of different places from Thailand very easily. So, you know, with that said, I think that there is a difference between what we perceive, Dan, in America as travel and then what happens in the rest of the world. So, for example, when you're in Asia... It's very inexpensive to change your plans and to not be committed to your trajectory. Whereas like in America, it's like, hey, I've got the car rented. <laughs> I've got a non-refundable hotel. It's like $500 to fly to this other city that's only 300 miles away. In Asia, it's the exact opposite of that. So I think if you showed up and you had no plan or your only plan was to go to Chiang Mai and Koh Samui, you would be in great shape. The other thing to know about our conference in Bangkok is that I would say over 50% at this point, Dan, of the attendees travel somewhere in Asia together or by themselves or with their significant others after the event. So if you showed up and you were like, I don't know what I'm going to do after, but I've got two weeks planned and I want to go somewhere, you will find someone and somewhere to go for sure. That's it. Putting yourself around people who are doing what you want to do. Again, you don't have to solve this problem on Google. Thank God. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're going to get a lot more insight and good information too. Once you're at the event, people are going to say, oh, you know, this is my favorite hotel on this island. You should come with us. Things like that. They really happen. I want to say one final thing is like, consider taking on a project or like, you know, you could get involved in some kind of volunteering gig or, you know, you could get hooked up with a local entrepreneur somehow, you know, consider doing something that's more than just 
kind of bouncing around looking at things that you don't get any real engagement with. You know, those are always the most special experiences. And another way that you can approach this is you can take your hobby to where you're going or find a hobby that you have an interest in that this place is really good at. So for me, Chiang Mai just so happens to be a great place to ride a road bike. And it was deeply rewarding for me to take my bike there and to get to know both international and local people who had the same hobby as me. And I know with a family, you got a lot of different interests and stuff at play, but maybe there's something to that principle of finding what you're passionate about and connecting that with wherever you're going, as opposed to just, hey, what do people do here? What's the top 10 things on TripAdvisor? Yeah. It's easy, like when you're in a new place, to forget yourself and to not trust what you like because it's like, well, I'm in Venice. I should do what people in Venice do. And I'm not so sure that's always the best strategy. Sometimes you can find out more about a place if there's a big part of you that's engaged with it as well. Cool? Cool. All right. We'd love to hear your thoughts. We'll be posting the show notes up at the blog, tropicalmba.com. If you have questions for us, just go there and subscribe and we'll send you a form. We'd love to hear and potentially answer your question on this very show. That'll be at tropicalmba.com slash subscribe. That's it. That's the end. I got nothing more on my computer screen. I got nothing as well. Yeah. <laughs> Boss man, I'll see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thanks for joining us. See you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.